This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Jesus proclaims in John chapter 6 that I am the bread of life, that whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we're obviously talking beyond literal physical hunger and thirst, because all of us have just shared, as those who have come to him and found faith in him, that we still get physically hungry and thirsty. Uh, But he's using that experience of wanting, of yearning, of needing to be filled with something to explain a deep spiritual truth. He's talking to the deeper, more meaningful desires that drive us, the things that we, you could say, hunger and thirst for meaning, significance, love, the things we need to find our sense of centre, the things we need to experience peace and joy, the things that we want to define us and to give us a sense that we are doing well uh, in life. And those things, Jesus says, are found in relationship with him, not in our circumstances, not in the various experiences that we may or may not experience through life, but found in relationship with him. That he is the one who can truly and lastingly satisfy those deep yearnings of the human soul. So we have been uh, all year talking about what it means uh, to be a people who, who overflow, who are filled with the life and love of Jesus to the point where it can't help but find expression. Uh, And this term, we've set it aside to actually focus on those things that fill us, uh, those inner spiritual resources that we have to draw from as we navigate through life as those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And this morning, we want to explore this idea that God is the one who can truly satisfy, and that it's in relationship with God that we can find this beautiful sense of peace and fulfillment that our cups, if you like, are full are filled to overflowing, that some of those deep yearnings are satisfied, they're satiated as we taste and experience God for ourselves. There are, of course, many places that we can turn to and run in order to try and fulfill those longings, but the writer of Ecclesiastes says to do that is like chasing the wind. It's like trying to catch hold of the wind. It's like trying to eat air in order to satisfy those hunger and thirst cravings. But in God, there is full satisfaction. So Psalm 73, verse 26, I think is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible that captures what we're talking about. I don't know if you know this or if this is a memory verse for you, but it it has been for many years for me. Psalm 73, verse 26, the psalmist cries out that my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Doesn't matter what I have or do not have, doesn't matter what I'm experiencing or what I'm not experiencing, but God is giving me strength in my heart, that my heart is filled, that He is our portion. He's the one that that fills us, that satisfies us, that gives to us what we need to feel safe and secure, loved, to have joy and peace, a sense of connection with the divine. A beautiful verse. What a beautiful way to live. That every day, no matter whatever circumstance we face, that we have this sense that our hearts 
are filled with strength, that our lives are fully satisfied because our portion does not change. Our portion is found in relationship with God. And for me, one of the most reasons that it's one of the most beautiful verses uh, in the scriptures uh, is because of what comes before it. Does anybody know Psalm 73, just out of interest? No? Great, because that's what we're tracking through today. So the psalmist goes on this incredible journey to get to this point at the end of the psalm. He has to really wrestle with it. Um, I think Psalm 73 is one of the most raw and honest kind of psalms that we have. Uh, it should just be compulsory, compulsory teaching, I think, for every Christian, um, because he says some things that we might think but would never dare voice out loud, but he's really, really honest. So we're going to jump in. I'm going to track through it. I'm going to share a little bit of my story and why this is such a passion topic for me that I want us all to grab hold of today. So the psalm starts this way, that surely God is good to Israel and to those who are purely in heart. Surely, surely he is. I'm not quite sure if this is a declaration of, of trust or this is a, I, I'm, I, yes, I'm hoping, surely, come on, aren't you God? Uh, aren't you good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart? Now, of course, if you were an Old Testament covenantal people of God, you were part of Israel, your answer to that question, effectively, would be what? Yes. Yeah, that wasn't a true question. Say with some... Yeah, you're like the psalmist. Surely God is good to those in Israel. No, the answer is yes, of course. Yeah, God has set his affection on his people, Israel. He's saved them. He's redeemed them from slavery. He's set them up in the promised land. He speaks over them that they are his chosen people, this royal priesthood, those through whom he is revealing his goodness and his character to the world, and that through them, as part of this outworking of the covenant with Abraham, he's going to bless the entire world through them. Is God good to Israel? Yes. Is he good to those who are pure in heart? Yes, as part of the covenantal blessings overflowing and finding expression in their lives. However... For the people of God, there was a little bit of tension in understanding what that word good meant. Surely God is good to Israel. You see, there is a temptation, I think, that is common to all humanity, where we want to tie our experience or our understanding of the goodness of God with the good gifts that he can give. And so for the people in Israel, that was really strongly tied to things that, well, they might be quite common to us in 2023 as well. Their experience of God and their understanding of God's goodness to them personally was tied to, what do you reckon? Oh, food, that's probably a good one, yeah. Money, wealth, health. For them, really, really important to have a large family and a legacy and a lineage and, of course a trouble-free existence. Didn't want to have drought, didn't want to have famine, didn't want to have opposing nations come and invade and, and, and disrupt your peace. And so there was this sense, and I don't know if it was implicit or misunderstanding somewhere along the line, that tied their experience and their understanding of God's goodness with these good gifts that he can or sometimes cannot give. And so by the time you get to Jesus, I mean, this has really taken root to the point where uh, they start to think, well, if somebody is not experiencing health and wealth and, and family prosperity and, and having a trouble-free life, well, somebody must be to blame in that equation because God is good, but what they're experiencing is not good. 
So therefore, something must have gone wrong. And so there's this horrible uh, story in John chapter 9 where the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they come across a man who is born blind. And their first reaction is not compassion, it's not empathy, it's not, Jesus, we must do something about it. It's a theological conundrum. So they say, who sinned? Jesus, who sinned? My, my theology, my understanding of how the world works is this guy, he's not fully uh, healthy. There's something wrong with his eyes, so therefore he must have sinned, except he was born blind. So was it him or was it his parents who sinned? Well, what a horrible theology. And so Jesus just squashes that straight off the bat. He's like, you know, you misunderstood. This is terrible theology. Nobody sinned here. Nobody's to blame. Nobody's at fault. But this is an opportunity for God's glory to, to be displayed in and through this man's life. Now, I don't think most of us would have a similar theology like that. I don't think most of us would look at somebody who is experiencing less of the trappings of success, if you like, and think to ourselves, well, there must be some kind of secret sin there, or there must be something wrong. God must be withholding blessings from that person deliberately or intentionally. And yet, I think there can still be a subtle form that creeps into the way that we think about our own experience of particularly material blessings. It's cutting a little close to home. Has anybody ever said the phrase, I'm so blessed? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And at its heart, it's one of the most beautiful expressions that actually this thing that I've experienced is a gift from God. I'm going to return it to him as thanks and praise. But if you're sitting there as somebody who's not experiencing that kind of thing, and you hear somebody say, oh, I'm so blessed. Aren't we so blessed? Isn't God so good to me? The question is the same as the psalmist. It's like, well, I know God is good, but is he good to me? Does God bless me like that? Does he show his favour to me like that? Does he love me like that? And, of course, these are things we would never say out loud, but the psalmist gives us permission to have this conversation. And so I was really... Um, my wife and I, we were really committed to using language really well when we fell pregnant. Because uh, we, well, my wife particularly had some really close friends who had been married a whole lot longer than us and had lived a whole lot more life than us and were unable to have children. And so we were just really careful to not say, we say, God has blessed us with these children. Um, and didn't want to hear or heap on any sense of understanding that God's goodness is tied proportionately to our experience of God's good gifts. Am I making some sense here? Yeah, yeah. Because what happens if you don't is you end up in the place where the psalmist gets to. When you tie your understanding, your experience of God's goodness to your circumstances, then when your circumstances are doing well, God is good. I am loved. I am blessed. I am fulfilled. I can experience joy and hope and peace. But when my circumstances don't go so well, hmm, there's a flow-on effect. And so for the psalmist in verse 2, he declares this, God is good to Israel, to those who are impure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. He's actually saying, you know what, I'd almost lost my faith. I'd almost turned my back on Yahweh, the living God. Why? Because I envied the arrogant when I, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks across the fence to people who are doing better than him. 
who have more money, who have, well, in, that, in those days, who have more livestock, or those who, who have more land. And, and in particular, he's comparing himself to those who don't even know God. And so he's looking at them, and he's looking at all these material trappings of success that they have, and in his heart, he's envying, he's coveting, and he's tying, well, he's questioning God. God, are you really good to your children if they have that and I do not? And it changes our perspective when we allow this little subtle shift in theology to creep into our world. And so he just goes on an absolute rant. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, I don't have every verse on the screen, so feel free to um, uh, follow along with me. But in verse 4, he just, he just goes off. He's like, look at these people. They've got no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And he goes on to talk about how proud they are, how they can think whatever they want to think. They can act in whatever way they want to act. They can say whatever they want to say. And he's somehow jealous of that uh, because what they're doing is not lining up with how a, a covenantal, obedient, faithful um, follower of, of Yahweh would act. And, and he kind of culminates in verse uh, 13. Ah, that's not the right verse. It's probably on the screen. Verse 12. Verse 12. And this is what they're like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, at this point, I have to say, Asaph, who's the guy who wrote the psalm, that doesn't sound right. I have not met anybody whose life is always free of care. But this is the perspective that he has. He's looking at these people in life and their experience of life, and he's going, they look so carefree, they look so blessed, that I don't even know what the point is. And he gets to this shocking conclusion where he says, well, maybe it's in vain. Maybe it's all for nothing. Maybe I'm following God. What's the point? And isn't that a dangerous place to get to? What's the point in following God if I don't have wealth and health and family and an easy life. Well, he asks it, and he asks it of God. And in putting in our scriptures, he gives us the permission to wrestle with and ask it of God for ourselves. That was a lot of background. Um, and so I want to explain why this is so personal and so important to me. And it's so personal and it's so important to me is because life does not always go the way that we would want it. And in this room, and I'll come back to this, I know of many, many, many people who are experiencing circumstances that are not of their choosing. And so I'd love it if you'll indulge me just to share a little bit of my own story and my own um, wrestle with this. Um, so when I was 21, after a couple of years of, of experiencing the call of God on my life, I, I left home and I, and I moved up to Sydney to study. Well, I was in Canberra at the time. Uh, so I moved up to Sydney to study at Bible College, following what I believed was God's call on my life. And it was a beautiful and it was a wonderful year of, of, of meeting new people, of, of diving into the scriptures, of, of wrestling with theology, of getting involved in a local church, of, of meeting a girl who I ended up being quite interested in and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I finished the year on absolute high. What, what an amazing year. How good is God? How blessed uh, am I to be following the call of God in my life and experiencing all of these things? At the beginning of my second year of Bible college, I, I, it kicked off with a little, a little thing, I don't know if you've heard of it, called glandular fever. Um, so I'm sitting there in week one or week two of classes, and my body just goes, haywire. Um, 
fevers, couldn't keep anything down, couldn't keep water down, all that kind of stuff. If you've had glandular fever, you know exactly what it is. And so my dad, bless him, he drives up from Canberra to come and pick me up and realises, hang on, this kid probably needs to come back home under our care for a bit while he recovers. Uh, and, dad, and Dad said, I've never experienced somebody so sick as when I walked into the door of your dorm room that day. I was, I was, I was pretty ill. Uh, and glandular fever for most people is somewhere between a three to six weeks, maybe even as much as a, as a term sort of recovery process. Um, but for me, that was not going to be the case. And it seemed to linger and to, to hang around and turn into something also sure you're very familiar with called chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I remember getting sick in the beginning, um, this is term one, and feeling, God will use this to bless me. You know, my theology wasn't so tied to God's good gifts and his goodness that I, that I was already in that place. But I just went, you know what, God will use this compulsory time of downtime to do a beautiful work in my heart and my life, and, and, I, and I trust him with this. But one term turned into two, three, four, five, six. And I struggled to do the most basic tasks. I got over the glandular fever and was able to return to college, but I, I found myself uh, just with not enough energy to function. Um, as, a, as a uni student um, who had a couple of subjects to do and a couple of assignments a semester. Not an outrageous load. I wasn't working at the time. Uh, I was volunteering at my local church. And so I used to start getting extensions um, for essays one week, two weeks, three weeks. Started getting some compassionate withdrawal from a couple of subjects because I couldn't actually fulfill my, my, my full load. And this went on for a couple of years. I remember at the end of the, the second year of um, having chronic physique syndrome, of um, having just a little bit of a window where I felt a, a rush of energy and I thought, oh, maybe this is it, maybe, maybe I'm over this and maybe I can, can return to my life. Um, and so I actually put my hand up for even more responsibility uh, at, my, at my local church that I was uh, at a part of. And a couple of weeks in, I just went, nope, that was a mistake. That was too much. I've bit off more than I can more than I can chew, and here I am in this place of not having enough energy to get through the day. And chronic fatigue syndrome is a, is a horrible illness if you've ever experienced it or ever journeyed with somebody who experiences it because it's silent. It doesn't visibly manifest. You know, your hair doesn't fall out. You, you, know, you don't have medicine that you take. It's just this immune response, this overactive immune response, um, usually to something like a glandular fever. And so people couldn't understand why I wasn't over it. My local GP, every time I went there, asked me all manner of questions around my emotional health, thinking very much that clearly you're just depressed and you can't get yourself going again. Um, but it got to the point where I had, to, I had to quit Bible college, I quit my local church, and I moved back in with mum and dad as a mid-twenties something-year-old who'd had a couple of years of independence, which is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. And I took, in my words, a year off life. So here I am in my mid-twenties, and I was doing one subject by distance for the first semester of that year. Not hanging out with any friends, not involved in any ministry, and watching a, a little bit too much daytime television. <laughs> Which is not that interesting. <laughs> in case you're wondering, it's just a way to pass the time. There's a lot of wrestling you do um, when something looks like it's chronic uh, 
and lasting. I started to wrestle in that year of like, well, is this it? Because I met with people, I, I knew of people who never, never returned to full strength and full energy from chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I'm sitting there with mum and dad at home, my, my sister's out and about, my brother's out, my younger brother and my younger sister, they're out and about living their lives and I'm sitting here being like, will I ever have enough energy to work a full-time job? Will I ever have the chance to follow this call of God on my life into ministry? What might that mean for marriage and kids and, and my future? And there's so some wrestling you do there. Or well, is God still good in the midst of that season? Yes. Of course he is. Absolutely he is. He loves me. He's with me. He's my source of strength and comfort and hope. And I don't need to tie my experience of God and my experience of his goodness and my experience of his great love to me in comparison with how other people's lives are progressing. I moved up to Bible college with somebody I knew in Canberra, same age as me. Uh, it took me, I can't even remember, five or six years to finally finish my degree. By that time, he was in full-time pastoral ministry, married, and just deep into his master's, and his life had just powered on where mine had felt like it had stalled for years and years and years. And as I look back on that, I'm not going to lie, there were, da there were days where I probably could have read some of Psalm 73 out as my own prayer and my own expression of disappointment and heartache to God. God, where are you in all this? I thought I was following your call. Is this what obedience looks like? You call me into ministry only to put me back into my parents' um, house? But as I look back, I always see the fingerprints of God. I, I see the presence of God. I see the kindness of God. I see the work of God in my life. I'm a better person. I'm a better husband. I'm a better disciple. I'm a better pastor because of my years spent wrestling with God in and through that experience. And, and praise God, and, I, and I'll say that, praise God, that, that was, uh, that I did come out of that, and obviously I'm working very full-time here and have, have two kids which are also very full-time. Um, but I would like to think that I would say praise God even if that wasn't the outcome. God is good, and he loves us, and he is with us, and we can be truly and deeply satisfied in him. That's not tied to our circumstances. It's not tied to our experience of life. That's not confined to the comparisons we make to the lives of others. And so let's return to Psalm 73 because there is a, there is a turning point. As much as the psalmist gets to this point where he wonders whether it's even worth it to follow God, which is a horrible place to get to, he realises verse 15 that if he had spoken out like that, he would have betrayed his children. He tried to understand all of these things. It troubled him deeply. There are often no answers for some of these things. But then he entered the sanctuary of God. It's the turning point of the psalm. But he goes to spend time with God. He takes his view off his circumstances. He takes his view off those that he's comparing himself to. He takes his view off those that he's jealous of, and he looks to God, and it's the turning point of the psalm. And there's a justice there part that's really important for him as he understands the death, final destiny of those who don't know God. 
But he actually gets to this beautiful place of self-awareness, verse uh, 21, of actually realizing that, that his heart and his spirit was bitter. He'd allow bitterness to take root in his life, bitterness towards God, bitterness towards other people's experience of life, bitterness about his own lot in life. And he realizes how silly and how foolishness that was. He was ignorant, a brute beast before God, like, like, a, like an animal that has no revelation of God. And the truth is, the spiritual truth, the true reality is that God is, well, that he is always with God and that God holds him by his right hand, that God guides him, that God guides us with his counsel and will afterwards take us into glory and he culminates with that beautiful phrase. Who am I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is what I would call hard-won theology. (laughs) He's been through the ringer. He's been through the dark night of the soul. And he's come out realising, do you know what? God is my portion. He is the one who truly satisfies. He is the one who is with me in the highs and the lows, in every season, in every example. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. Friends, it is a beautiful way to live. And I would humbly suggest that this is our inheritance as the children of God. To not go chasing the wind like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, to not always feel like our cup is empty and needs to be filled at the altar of money or fame or success or popularity or relationship or enter whatever it is that you're chasing. And that's not to diminish those very real and natural desires and that's not to ignore at all the emotions that go along with having some of our hopes and dreams unmet and unfulfilled in this life. But he's saying that behind that, above that, around that, is this beautiful, true reality that each and every day we get to journey with the creator God of the universe, who loves us and gave himself for us, who has poured out into us every spiritual blessing in Christ. We lack no good thing. And when we enter his sanctuary, so to speak, and we look on him, well, I believe the hymn says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You know, I've only been here a couple of months, a couple of weeks, a blip, a blip. And I've already heard so many stories. Right now, there are people in our church, multiple people in our church, who are facing cancer diagnosis of of various seriousnesses. I've heard the stories and I've heard the heartache from many of you over lost relationships, broken families, over your heart for your kids to know and love Jesus for themselves. I've met with and I've heard the stories of those who have incurable or seemingly incurable diseases or illnesses. Some genetic, some just come out of nowhere. There are people in the life of our church that have, yeah, I don't need to list them all, do I? You know them. And so I really want this message minister to this community this morning, for you to reach out and know, to reach out and receive, 
to reach out and experience this fulfillment, this ministry of God in our life, that he fills us up, fills our heart with strength, fills our cups with his portion, that we would find strength in him, comfort in him, and his beautiful just ability to navigate all of the highs as well as all of the lows, knowing that he is for us, that he is good. And so I've invited the prayer team um, this morning. Um, prayer team, if you want to find a nice place somewhere at the, at the back of the room. Because I recognise this, this is a kind of message and this is a kind of topic that can cut a little bit too close to home. And so my invitation is to any and all who want to go and receive prayer to go and do it. You know, just because God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever doesn't mean that we stop praying for healing or, provi- or provision or that he would answer our hopes and our hearts for our own desires in our life. Maybe you find yourself here this morning being like, dude, everything is going well in my life, but I'm probably relying far too much on external circumstances for this peace, this connection, this whatever it is that you're talking about. And I want to experience that. I want to taste that for myself, what it's like for God to be the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So at the back of the room, you'll see some people standing. They've got big lanyards that say prayer team on them. And I just invite you to go and and get some prayer. Go and get some prayer. There's no judgment in here. There's nobody guessing or trying to think through what you may or may not be experiencing, what you may or may not be asking for prayer. But this is just the recognition that God is here and he is with us that he longs and he loves to hear the prayers of his children. The real, the raw, the honest, there's the model, the honest prayers, the heartfelt prayers, and that he'll meet us in those hard places. He'll meet us in those dark places. He'll meet us in those frustrating places where we feel unfulfilled and we feel itchy, like we need to chase after something that should already be ours. So I invite you to go and receive some prayer. I'm going to invite uh, the team up. Worship team up. I'll provide a little bit of background music for a little while before we sing of the fact that Christ is our cornerstone. I'd love to pray for us and pray for us all. Heavenly Father, I want to start in that personal place by just thanking you that you are good to me. God, that you have blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God, that you've poured out in me your Holy Spirit. God, that those times where I've been grieving or those times where I've been struggling, those times where I've been jealous or or coveting the lives of others, you are enough. As I look to you, you are enough. Thank you for the joy and the hope and the peace and the comfort and the strength that I've found that comes from you. I want to pray for this church and all who call it home. But that they might find in you the fullest measure of satisfaction and fulfilment, strength, hope, joy, and everlasting peace. Jesus, we know that your words to your disciples, one of the, one of the final words to your disciples, was that in this life, we will have trouble. But to take heart, to take heart in you, Jesus, that you have overcome the world, that you live now in us by your Spirit, that you will one day call us home and make all wrongs right, restore all health to its fullness, and we will glory in your presence forever.
But in this life, Lord, we want to pray for the fullness of life that is promised to those who come to you and who place their trust and their faith in you. Father, as Psalm 90 says, would you satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Bless us, Lord, with this experience that we may face any and every circumstance with your goodness and your kindness and experience of your presence with us. And Lord, I do just want to pray for special kindness now as our prayer team minister. God, would you hear the prayers and the hearts and the hopes of your children? And would you be kind to respond, Lord, we pray. Lord, we do. We come before you praying for and trusting in and believing for healing and restoration. God, that you would meet those desires of our hearts. And at the same time, Lord, with the same voice, we proclaim that you are good and that we are blessed regardless of the outcome. Move and minister, Lord. Your children need you. I need you every day. And I want to thank you, Lord, that that's exactly what we have. You in the fullness of the measure of relationship with you. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.